Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Atheology. My name is Justin Schieber, and joining me on Skype is Real Atheology co-host Ben Watkins. Hello, everyone. So Ben and I are also joined by another human voice, uh, Corey Markham. Corey is one half of the new podcast called Hinge. Uh, Corey, uh, perhaps we could start off by you telling us a bit about yourself and a bit about this new podcast, The Hinge. Sure. Uh, so, you know, first, thanks for first for have, uh, having me on here. It's a pleasure. Um, I, um, I as, as far as Hinge and uh, what Hinge is and where it's coming from, uh, I recently moved out to Philadelphia to uh, to work on this this new program with a pastor friend of mine named Drew Sokol. Um, it's basically it's going to be a podcast about an atheist and a pastor uh, exploring together the historical figure, Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps, we might say. Um, and so in addition to having uh, having to do with history, um, uh, textual criticism, things like that, uh, it's also, of course, going to get into issues, just general issues pertaining to belief and doubt and faith and the sort of things that will come up when, when an atheist and a, and a pastor try to do something like that together. Um, and, you know, in addition... More and more, uh, especially with the the way our country uh, right now is, uh, with the political divisiveness, more and more that this this uh, podcast hinge is, is also about us trying to put a model out there for how people can have conversations uh, with people that they disagree with um, about matters of great importance, whether that's political, religious, or, or whatnot. And and yeah, and so uh, this it's a podcast that it's it will be it will consist of ten sequential episodes. Um, to get the full effect, you'll need to, to listen to, to, to them all in order. And uh, it'll be at the end of the, the first season, it'll be over. So, you know, the 10th episode will be the conclusion and, um, and, and that'll be the end of that. And it, it should, as of right now, we're, we, we hope to start releasing the official episodes at the end of the year, right around Christmas time. Um, of course, not, not accidentally. It would be uh, all too perfect if we could, <laughs> if we could uh, have the first one come out right around Christmas. Obviously, as it's about Jesus, and uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's that's kind of what it's about. Um, my, I should maybe say a little bit more about Drew. He, uh, he's by far and away the my favorite Christian to interact with. In that, he it's not just a matter of you know civil discourse, which I I'm actually able to find quite often. It's more about it's this what I like to call epistemic humility. He has it in leaps and bounds. He he's just particularly uh, sensitive sensitive to the limitations that he has uh, and or that he had in, in getting to the point that he has right now with his views and whatnot. And so it's just it's it's always refreshing uh, when the two of us interact on a daily basis now as we're working on this podcast. Um, just to see him, he he continually challenges me, of course, but I challenge him. And even if it gets heated and, you know, we're not able to see the other's point in the, in the moment, it's, it's, it happens all the time or after the fact, we kind of come back and we're like, you know, that was a really good point, what you brought up. And that really does make me, you know, it really does make me question this particular aspect or, or whatever. So, awesome. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's also, I'm sure you, you guys like it because it's just the idea of us having conversations with Christians is something that, you know, I'm sure you guys agree we need to do more and more uh, and yeah, so it's it's a cool, it's an awesome thing that we're doing at the moment. Yeah, and for those listeners who like the kind of uh, this American lifestyle podcast, I think this is a really this is a nice addition to that kind of audio audio documentary uh, kind of genre. You've got a couple episodes. I don't know if those are the official episodes, but you've got a couple out already. 
uh, under the title. Yeah, of- yeah. What well, to, to yeah to clarify? So we have it is it's kind of it's funny because it's it's we we didn't really uh, look, foresee or really think about how hard this would be to explain. <laughs> but we but basically at, right now as we're as I, when I moved out to Philly as we're making the podcast we we wanted a way to uh, put some material out there in the meantime both just for the people who have already expressed enthusiasm uh, and and for that matter who've supported us already. Um, and just, and honestly, just because we both, uh, what we're doing is just so much fun and it's, we just love it so much. It's just, we want to put stuff out there, you know, like, and, and so we kind of came up with the idea of, of doing sort of a runner up podcast where it's called, it's called hinge the making of it's on iTunes and other, uh, podcast, uh, mediums. And yeah, I mean, it, it, in a way it's sort of, it's a way for us to introduce some of the topics that we're going to get into in the official pod, uh, hinge podcast at the uh, end of the year. And also it's a way for us to, to start to introduce some of the guests that we're going to have on the show. So we're kind of having fun with it. It's not, it's very loosely formatted, uh, at, like in contrast, say to when we do the official hinge podcast, which, which as you said, is going to be a, um, a, a more or less a narrative form podcast over that that tells a story over the course of ten episodes, and such a podcast obviously is going to have discussion uh, too. But it's it's not going to be just so everyone's clear. It's not going to be kind of the typical discussion based podcast that that, that are um, that that are common um, and that already are doing this this job uh, of talking about religion and this kind of stuff really well, like your guys' show, for instance. <laughs> You, Corey, and and Ben had an interesting discussion uh, about a week ago on moral realism and your guys' kind of differing opinions on this. Uh, So whereas you both are atheists, you both believe that God does not exist, you guys have a disagreement, at least on some level, about the nature of moral facts. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to have you on, Corey, to kind of go have a back and forth with with Ben, who uh, is super into these these issues. And so I'm just going to pretty much take a back seat and uh, let this discussion continue um, and perhaps giving a bit of context for the for the discussion in the first place would be a good place to start I guess to give some background we kind of got on this topic um, because we ended up on Jonathan McClatchy's show together and we were discussing the moral argument or that the the moral argument was the top the topic of discussion and um, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's um, a theist will appeal to objective moral truths. They'll um, usually say something like objective moral values or objective moral duties. And if you grant that premise, then the move from the theist is, okay, you couldn't have these sort of moral truths unless there was a God, unless there was some divine commander Um, sometimes they'll defend this premise by appealing to Dostoevsky and saying, if God is dead, then all is permitted. Um, and the premise basically goes, if God does not, it's a, it's a conditional, uh, premise that says, if God does not exist, then there are no objective moral truths. Uh, they usually say objective moral values and duties. Um, and so that, the antecedent of that conditional claim is supposed to be sufficient for the consequence. So basically it's saying that atheism implies some form of moral nihilism. And so if you accept that claim, then you get, you accept that claim and you accept the claim that there are these moral truths, then you have a deductively valid argument to the existence of God. Yeah. I mean, just real, real simply just to to give a bullet point version, like, right. Like, so premise one, 
if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, but objective moral values do exist. And then therefore the conclusion, um, hence God exists. So yeah, but. And so we we could probably unpack the distinction there between uh, moral values and moral duties. <laughs> I, I suppose my problem is that I'm not – I have problem divorcing the two sometimes when I really try to, and, and hence my skepticism. So, so um, a value statement is going to be an evaluative claim. So if I say that so- something is good and bad or virtuous or vicious, those are evaluative claims. So those are the things that like <laughs> suffering is in itself bad, happiness is in itself good. These are evaluative claims. But if I were to make a claim about things that you should do in the sense that all the other options that you have would be wrong, when I use uh, terms like right and wrong, I'm talking about duties, uh, moral duties and obligations. So this is what morality requires of us. One of the um, great ways to think about this distinction is to say, it's a good thing if I become a doctor. That's a good thing in the world. I've added value to the world, but I'm not morally obligated to become a doctor. There's morality doesn't morality doesn't require of me to go to medical school and become a doctor. And so, one of the areas where um, atheists can disagree with how to approach this argument is if you deny the first step. If you if you don't concede to a theist that there are these objective moral truths. Um, then the argument is unsound um, because you could just defend some sort of anti-realist position about moral claims, something like non-cognitivism or nihilism. Um, but I think that that, mis- that that route is mistaken. Um, I think that we should grant that part of the argument that there are objective moral truths. I think that we should instead um, attack the first premise that says that Atheism implies some form of moral nihilism. The if God does not exist, then objective moral values and objective moral duties do not exist. That's and so I think that's an area where um, Corey and I have a lot of common ground, but we also yeah. find room for disagreement. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, we definitely were. I think we're right on the same page with respect to the, the first premise and this idea. We're, we're both pretty much convinced that it's not the case that basically that atheism entails more nihilism to put it in the simplest way possible um and so like, like you said it's more the second premise whether or not there actually is objective moral values that's where um really it's where i sort of get hung up on and and i suppose my my concern in one one uh, sense is just that i'm not sure what we mean by objective, and I think that depending on the philosopher and the, or the theologian, when they say objective moral values, I actually I, I can sort of agree with that. I think those do exist, but then depend if they and other definitions of objectivity. Uh, obviously, I, I'm not so much on board with. And so, I'm what I'm curious is maybe Benjamin, if you could if you could unpack even more specifically what you mean uh, when you say objective moral truths, and then I can we can see whether I actually agree or not, and then. Perhaps what I'm hoping to get out of this uh, is I would like to be convinced of moral realism in the sense that you mean it. <laughs> you know, I really would. I, I, it's funny because I, 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 it's not just I don't say that in, in a facetious manner. Like I, you know, I, I, it, it would be subjectively speaking, right? It's, I think it would be much better. Uh, 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 the world would be much better if I could 
um, or if there were really were objective moral values. And I just, I'm just not entirely convinced of it. I suppose you could say I'm a, somewhat of an agnostic <laughs> on this matter, which is, I, I think although I don't normally I think hear that's that. Fair enough. I think that's a yeah. fair position because I think that a lot of these questions that are raised in ethics and particularly in meta ethics are difficult questions. These are questions that require time and thought and we can't just intuit our way through it. So I think taking an agnostic approach to it is quite commendable instead of just saying, no, I don't think there are these sorts of things or saying, yes, I think there are these sorts of things, but I don't know how to defend that. So I, and, I, yeah, I and, and, and you, you, and uh, you even mean it in an objective sense when you think that's commendable. So I really, <laughs> so I, really I think that we have reasons, it. normative reasons to believe that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, in, in my version of, uh, what we can call um, normative realism. Um, my views are very much in line with Derek Parfitt's and Thomas Nagel and Eric Wielenberg um, and several other um, normative realists in that we believe that there are these objective moral truths. And so Corey asked, well, what what are we bringing on when we say objective moral truths? And I think that's that's exactly the right place to start this discussion, because the objective subjective divide in philosophy can can be a a very sh- large shade of gray, and so you've got to be very precise about what you're saying with, because these can be nebulous terms. Um, when I say that uh, a truth, just any truth, not just a moral truth, when I say that any truth is objective. I mean that it's not subjective. So that definition doesn't carry any weight unless we then define subjective that's not in the same terms as, as you know, using the word objective. So I think that our truth is subjective if it constituently depends on the attitudes, dispositions, or responses of observers or subjects. That's what would make it subjectivist. So if I say that John Stewart is funny, I'm I'm saying a subjective truth about John Stewart. If no one thought that John Stewart was funny, then it wouldn't be true that John Stewart was funny. Now if I said that squares have four sides, that's an objective truth. It doesn't matter what the attitudes or responses or dispositions or beliefs of any observers are. Squares have four sides. So that's how we can distinguish um, an objective truth from a subjective truth. So when I make certain moral claims like suffering is in itself bad, wanton cruelty is wrong, I'm saying that these statements can in the strongest sense be true, but their truth does not depend on the attitudes, responses, or dispositions of observers or subjects, either divine or or human, no subject. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I, that's. I think that's a great. This is this is part of the difficulty. I think is because so far, just by this definition, I'm not. I don't. I'm not so sure that I. I basically, I think I, I'm right there with you, and I, I would call myself a moral realist, and because I do think that, in the very least, we can get to what we might call moral truths. That, that do not depend uh, on that, basically on the attitudes or opinions of individuals in the way that you're, you're laying out there. And I suppose my concern is I'm still not sure that that, 
it's almost, I guess it has to do with some philosophers, as you know, I and mean, you're probably better about uh, pointing them out. Some of them would, would reject this need for there being a, some sort of metaphysical foundation of the type that we're talking about and still say that, you know, that, that doesn't mean that we can't get to objective moral truths. And, and, and I, and I suppose another concern of mine is that it seems to me that in this, this system of yours, that there is, and perhaps you could you could just answer this directly. Um, there, there does seem to be some uh, some aspect of your system that is in some way based on your attitudes or opinions. And really, what that what I'm referring to is sort of at the heart, the, the crux of your system. You, there are going to be these certain axioms or uh, moral assumptions, moral principles that you have there. That, as you well as you know full well, that it's they're not obviously true. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose maybe, maybe start there. And so what, would you agree that there, at least in some way that this does go back to your, uh, that to your attitudes or opinions with respect to the moral assumptions and principles or, or is there some way to get around that by, by your understanding? Well, so I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm entirely sure I'm understanding you, but I'll, yeah. Well, stop me if I if if I lose you. Um, I would I would not say that these truths depend on me in any way. So that if if humanity were to cease to exist, it would still be true that wanton cruelty was wrong, and it would still be true that suffering was in itself bad. But now I do have to have an epistemological element to this. I have to say, okay, how do I know? these sorts of truths? How do I have access to these sorts of truths? And so I would appeal then to uh, what Michael Humer calls rational intuition. So I think, and maybe this is what you were saying earlier, and I, w- I would agree with it, that at, at some level, we have to take certain judgments at face value and say, okay, this is, this is what I, you know, e- explanation comes to an end somewhere. So we're, Basically, at the bottom, at, at, at the phys- philosophical bedrock of any of our systems, are going to have to be um, principles or axioms that themselves are not derived from other truths. They are self-evident, and we take them, take them on, um, and are prima facie justified in doing so. Things like we have veridical sense experience. From the external world, we just take that for granted. Our systems at the bottom say, "Okay, it seems to us that our senses give us reliable information about the external world, so we take that to be true." Um, our memory experiences are, are another. We say, "Okay, well, my, my memories are get are reliable. They're giving me information about past events that really happened." And so, I think just like mathematical, logical, and modal intuitions, we can have normative intuitions about what we have reasons to believe, what reasons we have to perform certain actions, and what reasons we have to have certain desires or attitudes or goals. So I take a view that either there are these irreducibly normative truths or nothing matters. And that's that's kind of a... a uh, a bold claim, but I think I think that's true. I think that if we don't have any reasons to have the desires that we do have, then nothing really matters. Reason can't help us. We're we're basically in the dark 
on what we ought to do. Instead of uh, when Socrates poses his question, how ought we live? What ought we do? Um, the subjectivists have to say, they have to change that question. They have to say, what do I want most want? And that's all that, and that's all that can get in. And, and to me, that's the equivalent of nihilism. And so I think there are these irreducibly normative truths. I think, so my thesis that I'm defending is, is that some things matter in the sense that we have reasons to care about them for their own sake. Um, things like the suffering of humanity, things like people's happiness, um, things like people's freedom. So I think these are, these, these are things that are good in a reason-implying sense, in the sense that the, the very nature of these things give us reasons to care about them for their own sake. So there's a lot of, lot of directions uh, that I could go with this. I hmm, um, One thing, I, I certainly am with you on the distinguishing between ontology and epistemology. Um, so what we know mm -hmm. to be the case and, and what actually is the case. And uh, basically, I, I still don't really – I'm still not sure as to what makes uh, a given thing um, or what makes these – what gives these things their objective. I mean, you basically – basically, if I understand you correctly, you, you sort of just made an appeal to the brute facts um, or to sure. a sort of brute facts basis where you, at, at – some level at the heart of it you really do just sort of have to take these things at face value um certain moral assumptions and more principles and then you basically just said that that's justifiable though because we do something similar with respect to logic and other other sort of normative systems like that uh and i i guess one question would be do you do you really think that the that it is on par um our inability to justify moral systems with our inability to justify logic and those kind of things because just at uh, intuitively, it seems that seems off to me. Like it, it seems there's more basis, say, to uh, to um, put stock in some of the presupp the suppositions at like the heart of logic, say, than there is with respect to like the the moral sphere. I mean, it, yeah, does that make maybe rather than say a bunch of things, I think I'm going to try to do point by point. <laughs> I think this is a great place to start because one of the so when I say that they're irreducibly normative truths. What do I mean? Well, I mean that these truths are irreducible, meaning that they can't be reduced to some a, a truth of some other kind. They're not; they're in their own non-overlapping category. They're not a mathematical fact. They're not a natural fact. They're not a modal fact. These are normative moral facts. facts. Yeah, or, moral yeah. facts. You know, uh, that, that's, that's that uh, moral fact is a type of normative fact. But there are also ep um, epistemic facts, facts about reasons. So, so you just we we can pick up right there, um, where I say, okay, if I can demonstrate the existence of at least one irreducibly normative truth, that resolves some of the worries that you have, because you're probably wor worried about, well, are there these irreducibly normative truths? And so, yeah. is that right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's that's part of the concern. Excellent, excellent. And they so, and they seem, and I hate to say it, I hate to be that guy, but they do seem. I'm not I'm not beholden to metaphysical naturalism, but it, it I do get wary the more abstract and I mean it's you know it gets really close to the sort of things that people people would would otherwise 
uh, referred to as supernatural or something like that. Um, and but anyway, please continue. I think that's fair what you said. Yeah. So so this is this is great. I like where this conversation's going because I think I think your worry is common among many thinkers, and I think it's a worry that we can resolve our differ- differences on. And so um, let's take the example of having a, a valid argument. So that's a modal claim. We're going to say that some argument is valid and has true premises such that its conclusion must be true. That's a modal claim. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. So in every possible world, this argument with its true premises will always yield this true conclusion. So I would make the normative claim then that we all have reason to accept that conclusion. Would you agree with that? Yes. That is an irreducibly normative claim. There's your irreducibly normative truth about epistemic reasons, about what we have most reason to believe. So right there. So I think it's very difficult to avoid that argument to then say, no, we don't have, we don't all have a reason to believe that conclusion. That to me seems absurd. And so I'm with you. I'm I'm with you, but like, help me, help me connect the dots. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, so then people's worry is, okay, well, I've got this irreducibly normative truth that I agree with that. That that just seems too obvious to dismiss. Well, what does that commit me to? I, I think this is where, Apologists have done have been successful in uh, uh, hoodwinking atheists in in a sense of thinking that these sorts of truths have some sort of ontologically weighty implications. That these truths can only be true because they correspond to some part of reality, and so all of a sudden there's these mysterious metaphysical entities free floating in the world that we somehow have access, epistemic access to. Have you, have you noticed that? Is that, is that, yeah. one of, that, yeah. that kind of oh, describes yeah. a concern? Well, so I say that these truths don't have any ontologically weighty implications, meaning that these truths aren't made true by how they correspond to some part of reality, whether in the natural world or some non-spatio-temporal platonic realm these truths can just be true in their own right just like mathematical truths just like logical truths and just like modal truths so modal claims aren't made true by how they correspond to some part of reality they're not even part of reality they're possible worlds possible worlds that don't even exist so they don't they aren't made true by how they correspond to some part of reality. Arithmetical truths, like there are infinitely many number, there's an infinite number of prime numbers greater than 100. That's not referring to anything in the world. Yeah. So we're not committed to anything, you know, uh, mathematicians shouldn't worry that their mathematical theories will unravel because there aren't these entities called numbers as part of reality for these claims to correspond to. And so similarly, ethicists shouldn't worry 
about their moral claims not being true, and atheists shouldn't worry about their moral claims not being true, because there aren't these ontologically weighty, irreducibly normative truths. Once you get rid of those metaphysical assumptions, then you're fine. You're, you're, so the normative realist doesn't disagree with the metaphysical naturalist the about with the metaphysical naturalist about the contents of the universe what they disagree with them about is the order of normative explanation they think that that value terminates in itself value statements aren't made true by something else the subjectivist wants to explain those truths in terms of some possible desire of some possible agent. The realist says no. They, they, they reject that whole approach and they reverse it. They think that it's not us that gives things value. We're, our attitudes and desires can uh, correspond to actual value and, may, and come to decisions to make certain actions by responding to reasons. So at the heart of this is Plato's assumption that man is a rational animal, that we have the ability to respond and be aware of reasons to have certain beliefs, like the conclusion earlier, or to have certain desires, or to perform certain actions. And those don't have any metaphysically weighty implications. Um, yeah, man. So obviously a lot of this is not stuff, is stuff that I'm going to have to process and I'm not going to yeah. be able to just, uh, <laughs> you know, to g- give you a rebuttal or necessarily accept, because even if, even if so much of what you're saying does make sense, I still, I still get caught up on my own, um, on, sure. on perhaps that just being a misunderstanding on my part. And, and also the, the fact that I want this to be so is also, uh, is also on, on my, uh, my mind with respect to that too, but I, excellent. Uh, one okay, so one thing you said I wrote this down when you said that you know something matters, um, insofar that we have reason to care about it for its own sake. Is that right? Is that yes. was that yes? Okay, yeah, that's exactly so, right. So something matters, in insofar that it has, we have reason to care about it for its own sake. And now you uh, you also said that obviously normativity normativity is isn't uh, restricted to morality. So like there are epistemological uh, normative claims and stuff like that too. Um, I suppose I I still it seems it seems almost too easy. Maybe that's one way to voice my concern. <laughs> it, it seems <laughs> like it, it's almost like the way you're laying it out, it's so straightforward and simple. It's hard for me to um, for me to think that all the you know all the the minds before myself, uh, far more intelligent than myself, um, looking in these issues, that they somehow just dropped the ball and didn't see how simple it was. And and so, yeah, I don't know. I I, I suppose I just the idea that we have reason to care about something for its own sake, that being enough to get us to more realism that's i'm still caught up on that and maybe the for its own sake maybe you can if you could unload that a little bit more too so are you kind of saying there that there are certain things that are just intrinsically uh, intrinsically valuable sure in their own in their own right value yeah intrinsic value is something that's very important to my conception of uh, my ethical system. Um, so for the, for the listeners to explain that a little bit further, um, there's a distinction between intrinsic value and extrinsic value. Uh, 
And so an intrinsic, intrinsic value is something that's valuable in and of itself. It's not made valuable by something else. That would be something of extrinsic value, something like money is of extrinsic value. In itself, it's not worth anything. It's just a piece of paper or a coin or um, code in your debit card. Um, but something like happiness would be of intrinsic value. It's something that would be an end in and of itself, something that you would, you, you're not trying to obtain it in order to get something of greater value. And so one of the easiest places to see these sorts of things is when we take our basic intuitions of pain and pleasure. And so we can say that pain and pleasure are of intrinsic value. Obviously, in, in opposite ways, we want to uh, pursue pleasure and we want to avoid pain. But sometimes pain is instrumental or extrinsic in getting higher ordered goods. So I may have a toothache that's really unhealthy for me, that's bad for me. It does not consist in part as part of my well-being. I can go get that fixed having healthy teeth, which is good. It is part of my it's something that consists in part of my well-being. So the pain that the dentist inflicts on me is instrumental or extrinsic value to me because it allows me to achieve this higher ordered good. Well, eventually, the all extrinsic goods terminate in something intrinsically good. And if there's nothing intrinsically good in the world, then it doesn't matter. Everything's of extrinsic value and nothing matters because you could at bottom have anything. One of your aims could be torturing people. If torturing people is not wrong in itself, then it doesn't matter if that's my aim. And so yeah. I'm appealing to um, the concept of a purely normative reason. And so this is this is the part where when I say that some things matter for their own se- uh, matter in the sense in the reason implying sense, what I mean is um, that. Some facts is a reason or give us a, gives us a reason when that fact counts in favor of having some belief or desire or acting in some way. So a, a doctor whose patient's grimacing, that's a reason for the doctor to believe that his patient is in pain. The fact that she is in pain gives the doctor a reason to do something about the pain. It's the pay, It's the fact that the patient's in pain, not anything about the doctor's desires are relevant in this reason implying sense. He has reasons to care about the pain for its own sake. Yeah, so I'm with you on that. I certainly I, that's it's clear that that's not. Uh, it's not a subjective matter because it, it really does boil down to the fact that she is experiencing pain, which is something that's happening in the world, I suppose. But I still don't like what take pain, for instance, right? Why mm-hmm. is pain intrinsically, uh, intrinsically bad? There, there would be no, you, you've hit philosophical yeah, yeah, bedrock. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that gets back to that. And, and, and I think, I, I suppose if the argument is that this is just unavoidable, insofar that we're doing the game of more realism and that's and so it's fair game then that's one thing but i don't 
You know, like I just, it's, it, that just doesn't seem obvious to me. Like I don't, it, or well, it certainly so, doesn't, so, it isn't, so it is, certainly isn't, it isn't persuasive maybe is the better point. Like it's not obvious. Okay, whatever. But well, it, it's not persuasive. Let's obvious, obvious example. Okay. It's, let's yeah, let's yeah. go back to the epistemic argument where I said you ought to believe the conclusion. Well, if we can, actually, I hate to do it. If we could, honestly, it, it would be much more helpful if you could literally just, if we could focus on like pain, something like really straightforward, right? Like, well, yeah, pain, I'm, yeah, I'm coming back to that. Uh, okay, you okay, said, okay, what, what makes pain bad? Okay. So, and I said, that well, there, yeah, there is no further, there is no yeah, further yeah, answer yeah, to that. And you think that seems too easy. So, so I'm saying, put that, put that, keep that, hold that in your mind for a second. Because we're, then we take the example of, the argument with the valid argument with true premises. What if you were to then ask for that question, but why should I accept the conclusion? There is no answer to that question, is there? The fact that the, va- the argument was valid and had true pr- premises was the reason for you to accept it. There was no further, but what, but okay, I accept that it has valid premises or is that it's a valid argument and it has true premises, but why should, what, what, what makes it that I should believe this conclusion? I don't think that, that, that question has any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't think it's, well, what makes pain bad? I think doesn't make sense in the same way that other one doesn't make sense. Cause it's, it's not the case, like not even an omnipotent God couldn't make it the case that pain was intrinsically good, that we all had reasons to pursue pain for its own sake. Not well, even why is that? Good. I, I guess I don't even, I still not even. For the same reason that he couldn't make it the case that you shouldn't believe the conclusion that of the argument that was valid and had true premises. It's, it's a necessary truth. That's just the way it is. That's you've, you've hit philosophical bedrock with the spade of a meaningless question. I lost Sam Harris. <laughs> and so and so this is a part I'm glad you mentioned Sam Harris because this is a this is a part where um he just he should have just come out and said this about his moral theory. He's just saying, look, right. he thinks that the greatest possible misery for everyone is bad. It's philosophical, yeah. It's yeah. bad. And he says that's if that's not bad, then no and I think he's right. I think he I think when you say the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, he's saying something true but he's saying a necessary truth. That's the ground of his system. If you were to say, yeah, but why is that bad? Why is the worst possible misery for everyone bad? There is no answer to that question. It's a bad question. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Benjamin, Benjamin, Benjamin. I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I hear you. I'm with you, but I still not. I guess I. I suppose part of the problem is I, I probably don't follow you uh, perfectly with with the first um, with your the first little argument that you're giving. And I know you you gave that before on I saw it on Facebook and it made more sense to me uh, in that at that point. But which one? Uh, the agony argument or no? Um, the the analogy that you keep drawing between that the valid that valid argument and oh yeah the valid argument between. with true premises yeah yeah yeah. So, so I think uh, that that argument's useful in establishing the existence of an irreducibly normative truth, because that also right. undercuts any yeah. of the metaphysical objections that people might bring to moral realism and say, "Look, these irreducibly normative truths are too queer to be part of the fabric of the universe," as J.L. Mackey famously said. Right. Um, 
I, I think you can avoid those objections entirely by saying, no, look, there are these irreducibly normative truths, and they don't have any ontologically weighty implications. Well, so I, I okay. So let's say that 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 does get you out of that um, that initial objection. How do we then? It doesn't seem to me that that it follows from that there that there are these irreducibly normative moral truths. No, you let's that say you've established. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So like so, so maybe maybe we can just go. Let's just say. <laughs> leave that aside and say that that's, I think that's well said and I'll think about that later. And then maybe let's go beyond that then. Fair enough. Let's just say we have a good objection to the, to the, the, the theist or the atheist that has that concern about the metaphysical uh, stuff. But so then, like you said, how do we then go to, how do we then get to these irreducibly normative uh, moral truths? We've established that there's at least one, uh, one with respect to epistemology. And so that gets rid of that concern, but, but then now what? Now comes the the part um, where where we've got our meta ethical foundation now. So now what we need is a normative view, a view about what we ought to do. Now that we've established what it means when we say that some act is good in the reason implying sense, or that some act is wrong. Once we once we're putting those in terms of reasons, we can then start putting forward moral principles, moral principles about what we should actually do. And so there's, again, there's this irreducibly normative aspect of moral language too. This uh, will, uh, Derek Parfit uses the phrase, this mustn't be done-ness to these sorts of claims. So moral claims are overriding, they're categorical. So you're not going to have some consideration that would outweigh a moral claim. Does that make sense? Maybe another moral yeah. claim, but you're not going to have some other claim that's going to override. And so this is basically finding the bedrock of our now normative claims. And so there's just different versions of way you, ways you can um, hash that out. And I've heard, I believe you defended it on Tyler Vela's show, um, uh, contra- Shelley Kagan's contractualist formulation. Yeah. And so his is uh, very similar to Scanlon's, which which I more sympathize with, um, which says that an act is wrong just when and because such acts are disallowed by some principle that no one could reasonably reject. So let's take the principle, do not disable people. That's a, 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 general, a, a general rule that's not, obviously not an absolute rule. You, you know, we might need to amputate something, someone's limb in order to in save certain their circumstances, life. right? Exactly. So, but these are proton. So a principle for the general regulation of behavior, something like do not disable other people. That's not a principle that anyone could, in the reason sense that I've been saying, could object to, could give a reasonable objection to. And so I think this view lines up with what's called rule consequentialism, which says that we ought to act on the principles whose acceptance would make things go best. So the principles that no one could reasonably reject reject just are those principles that would make things go best. No one could reject to sets of rules that would make things go best. So you could start adding more rules and principles to your normative views. Things like do not, you know, kill, um, do not deprive of freedom, um, keep your promises, 
do your duty, obey the law. These are all things that you can see are in a strong sense true because they can't reasonably be rejected. And they are those principles that would make things go best. So these, so it follows, these are the principles we ought to follow in the reason implying sense, meaning we have the most reason to take these principles as our overriding aims. So even if there is no God, and by the way, this God would be constrained by this too. He couldn't issue commands that no one could reasonably reject, moral commands. He couldn't make any, you know, he couldn't give laws to all people that people could reasonably reject to. Do you see that? Or that wouldn't make things go best. God would still be constrained by this. He wouldn't have to create it. It wouldn't be contingent on God. God would be constrained by this as well. Yeah. You know, I, I, one thing that I, that I always think about when I, when I, when you get into these issues is like, I certainly find it interesting, um, but I do wonder how much pragmatic value it has. And so, and, and, and so what, what I think of is, is Sam Harris, when he got into his moral landscape, he usually t- uh, starts the talks or his, like the book, for instance, talking about like the moral degradation going on in society and how he's, he thinks it's a concern um, that, more and more people are, you know, that essentially that they're sort of rejecting moral realism, and and I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I would assume that you're, you would agree with him. Would that be, is that, would that be spot on? Is that a concern of yours? Well, it is in the sense that I think what the postmodernists have done is, in a very real sense, evil. In say, you know, that truth is relative, and that these yeah. sorts of things don't matter. And so I think that right. there's there's a very real wave of postmodern moral relativism that is pervasive in the populace that I think is very toxic um, to moral progress. So yeah. I think yeah. moral. So as a realist, I think moral progress is real. So I think you know uh, overcoming slavery and women's suffrage and civil rights these are all parts of moral progress. Um, subjectivists have a very difficult time making those sorts of claims. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I guess, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I just mean that like, it seems like if, if we're going to spend our time on this earth doing things, you know, it, I think it would be better suited to, you know, work more maybe in the realm of like applied ethics and things like that. And I, I suppose this is because like, I, I like to imagine the future where the, 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 the famous Benjamin philosopher that you're, that you'll, I'm sure you'll be, uh, that you successfully <laughs> prove the objectivity of moral values or, you know, or more realism. And then I wonder like, what would change? Like, and I don't, I, th- you know, I you know, like it's like rapists aren't going to start refraining from raping. No, someone just I don't think you have any kind of, yeah, yeah, and so no. yeah, and, and obviously you don't. And but anyway, I just it, I, sometimes when I when I get caught up in this stuff, it's so interesting and um and but it almost feels like almost too academic if you if you <laughs> look, like, get down back to the earth and think about the sort of the stuff that's going on. And and I don't you know the part of the problem I think is like someone will come at me and like how do you like I don't know how to convince someone that doesn't already have, say, empathy or doesn't already value uh, certain things like uh, happiness. I don't know how to convince them to, and I'm well, not sure that it is a way. No, you can't because yeah, yeah. morality is one of those things that like, that you take on the principles. 
that you believe are true. So remember, yeah. these, are the, these are our overriding factors. So if someone has different overriding factors, like the commands of God, you're probably not going to be able to convince that person. That person's going to have to convince themselves. They're going to have to weigh the arguments. And some, I, I you know, maybe this is my own pessimism, but I just think some people aren't wired that way. Some people just don't have the capacities to examine their beliefs critically. But I think there's another side to this coin in that this is where I think academia has – the problem is in academia. It's only someone that's been to university that would would challenge in this abstract way that there are no moral truths. So you know, prior yeah, right. to being opposed to apologetics or – philosophy most people would say yeah some things matter for their own sake yeah like pain is bad pleasure is good and move on with their life they would just live they, they would just keep living on without thinking much of that i think it, it it takes an overly skeptical mind to then try to undermine those claims but i think one of the real tensions in academia has stemmed from what i call a lithic realism and naturalism about reality. And so um, I guess I should define the define these. So a lithic realism says that all true claims are made to be true by the way in which these claims correctly describe or correspond to how some some things are in some part of reality. And then naturalism about reality is the belief that the natural spatio-temporal world is the whole of reality. And so I think those two theses, rough, you know, rough theses combined together are what people like yourself have, you know, all, okay, well, there's, they, they combine and make this alithic naturalism where all truths are about natural facts. And so if these irreducibly normative truths aren't natural facts, well, then they just can't exist. And I think that's the mistake. I think that's where, um, uh, once logical positivism started to recede, there were still these quasi-realists and ethical subjectivists that still persisted on. And we're just now getting to the point where all of that is fading away. Uh, uh, Peter Singer has since moved into the objectivist camp. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw that recently, yeah. Yeah, um, and so um, Alan Gibbard, um, one of the predominant quasi-realist expressivists, um, a well-known anti-realist, has changed his views on this. Peter Railton was a was a ethical naturalist who has since changed his mind. Shelley Kagan has come on to this. He's, um, he, and, the, 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 hold on. The, so the nat- naturalist, where he changed his mind to being to uh, a sort of yes. normative realism, essentially? It, or, yes. Irreducible? So, yeah. so Peter Railton believed that with, that we have to make irreducibly normative claims when we make moral claims. But when these claims are true, they refer to natural facts. Right. So let's take a, a simple example and just take hedonistic utilitarianism as, a, as an example, which is the um, view that we ought to do whatever would benefit most people's pleasure. And so he would say an act, when we say that some act is wrong, or when we say that some act is right, we're saying that it's maximizing pleasure. Well, maximizing pleasure is a natural fact. But I think that's mistaken. I don't think that irreducibly normative claims can 
refer to just natural facts. I think it requires the, the fact that I will run over a dog is the fact that makes it the case that I should step on my brakes. But there's a more general truth, a non-natural truth that says I shouldn't cause unnecessary harm to another sentient being. That and, truth, right, and that and that doesn't reduce to uh, the natural correct. fact that yeah. correct, correct. But but that truth is what what licenses that inference to say that this natural fact that if I don't step on my brakes, I'll run over this dog. That's a natural fact. That fact counts in favor of me stepping on my brakes. You've got to have a, there. There's a piece missing. There's a there's there's a premise missing, and that premise is you shouldn't cause unnecessary harm. To another sentient creature. That's the non-natural uh, claim. And so Railton was hesitant to accept these claims because he thought they they had these ontologically weighty implications and he didn't want to add weird things to his ontology. Well, when he started conversing with Derek Parfit and they came up, you know, with their latest book, they realized, oh. Well, if these claims don't ex- don't commit me to anything ontologically weighty, both Railton and Gibbard said we're willing to accept these claims. And so now, Derek Parfit, Railton, and Gibbard have resolved their differences. They all have the same normative beliefs. Yeah, and 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 that's is that part of Parfit's project to try to show uh, that many of these seemingly. Uh, distinct views are actually more or less saying the same thing in different languages. Is that, is that right? So he that? uses the analogy: they're climbing the same mountain from different sides. Ah, uh, so much so, more poetic. Yeah, yeah. And so he originally <laughs> used that in his volume two because he did this with normative claims. Remember how I said earlier that the contractualist um, yeah. view and the rule consequentialist view overlapped. Well, he thinks there's a third view, a Kantian view, that. Um, moral principles are the principles that everyone can universalizably will. Categorically so, imperative, yeah. Yeah, so those all though the the principles that everyone can rationally will just are the principles that make things go best, which just are the principles that no one could reasonably reject. So he says that the Kantians and the con- consequentialists and the contractualists are all climbing the same mountain from different sides. So then he did the same thing in metaethics. He said, look, the ethical non-naturalists, the ethical naturalists, and the quasi-realist expressivists are all climbing the same mountain from different sides. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I feel like I'm – Justin is sort of just sort of in the background not saying anything, and then I'm sort of like <laughs> in the middle where I'm saying a few words here and there. And then and then Benjamin is just teaching us all this, all this wisdom. About, uh, <laughs> I'm just soaking um, it up. Yeah, yeah, and I'm trying to too, and I'm trying to at the same time come up with objections, but the, but at the same time I'm trying to not do that because I want to be open and I want to I want to be able to accept this. And um, I think you, you've covered. Thing to do is to ask questions for now instead of worrying about yeah yeah right now or trying to come up with objections. Ask questions because the more because even if in the end you don't end up accepting this view you'll have a great understanding of a meta-ethical view and you'll have a huge advantage a way of thinking about this conceptual space better yeah 
Yeah. Well, speaking of questions, Benjamin, uh, you've <laughs> we, we we spent most of this uh, discussion in the realm of moral ontology and like like the nature and foundation of of moral value and and obligations. And I suppose why don't we go into uh, epistemology, moral epistemology, and, sure. and obviously an, another possible concern of mine and a concern that has been raised by by many people over the years is is just how do we how do we as um, as these you know these primates with a particularly complex frontal lobe um, how, how do we actually know for sure that we're getting to moral truths um, and is it just a matter of what's intuitively the case for us and, uh, and so yeah. I would say that it starts with rational intuition but just like in mathematics and logic we take those initial seemings and then we test them we um, conduct thought experiments and we um, push these concepts to their conceptual limits to see um, what what can what we can usefully take away from these sorts of things. Um, so just to be clear, then, so we're we're doing like a conceptual as opposed to like an empirical testing, right? Absolutely. So I don't think that there can be empirical evidence for or right. against these irreducibly normative truths. There's no experiment that I can perform that's going to confirm or deny that we all have reason to care about agony. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah, yeah. And so um, just like in mathematics, we would say, okay, well, let's start with this sort of formula, and you know, this, this axiom seems self-evident. What are the consequences of it? Do we, you know, do we come with any tensions and any other beliefs? And if so, then we give this up. And you, you see what I'm saying? Because, you know, this is yeah. this is how utilitarianism has evolved over the years. You know, people said, look, it just seems obvious that pain and pleasure, those are the things that are of intrinsic value. And but then thought experiments like trolley dilemmas have come around and have really tested the, you know, really strained those intuitions. And we've gone, okay. Maybe maybe we need to revise our views some more, and so this is it's 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 definitely a realm of pure philosophy, in the sense that it's going to be taking those basic intu rational intuitions and pushing them to their limits and seeing what can withstand objections and scrutiny and what where we can make progress. Yeah. So would you would you say I'm, I could be just dead wrong about this, but it seems to me that there would be some sort of um, empirical demonstrability when it comes to mathematics. And so, like, do you think I'm am I wrong about that? Am I mis misunderstanding yours? Or because it because it. Yeah, Maybe whereas, in so there is there's a sort of empirical demonstrability with mathematics that you don't seem to find with ethics, where, like you said, there really isn't any sort of measure. There, like there's nothing like whereas I do think there's there's more than than just numbers say with mathematics we can well, measure right we can we can use that in the world and we can make predictions for instance um, well that's uh, where these fields uh, uh, are relevantly Diverge. different in the sense that ah. mathematics is quantitative where ethics is more qualitative. So you're just it's a different language game in that sense but pure mathematics like arithmetic that's not an empirical endeavor at all. So right, right. um that's what I would compare it to not you know applied math you know, um where you would go out into the you know a, a posteriori, posteriori mathematics. Um this is well within the 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 realm of a priori knowledge. So I think one of the the a good example is you know principles of logic or 
um, modal claims, our claims about um, necessity and possibility. So it's it's merely possible that I own a pair of orange socks. I don't actually own a pair of orange socks, but it is merely possible. And so that's an, that's an intuition. That's a modal intuition. I'm saying, look, that orange socks have this property of possibly being owned by me. And so, but that doesn't commit me to any ontologically weird things. And I don't have any epistemological problems with it. If, if you're going to say, well, you, you, there's epistemological objections to these normative claims. Well, then you'd have to also throw out these modal claims and these mathematical claims and these logical claims. And I think you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater at that point. Yeah. Well, I don't want to throw any babies anywhere. So that's the, that's clear. an irreducibly normative claim. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't. Oh gosh. An- another problem I'm worried about is uh, there. Ultimately, it, this does seem to boil down to intuitions, and needless to say, uh, intuitions differ quite radically. And so this you know, this is almost a cliche concern or objection to more realism at this point. Um, but since we're talking about a moral epistemology, I, I would be curious to kind of see what you think about uh, the fact that we have such widespread diversity when, when it comes to uh, our moral intuitions. And I mean, is, the, is that a concern? If not, why isn't it a concern for you? So I think it's certainly a prima facie concern. So it's one of those concerns that would require ethicists to address. And I would agree that there is widespread disagreement about particular moral issues, but issues like abortion. Um, but I don't think that there is widespread disagreement on basic moral truths, things like don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, um, don't disable, don't deprive of freedom. These are all um, moral judgments that I think are fairly universal. And when they're not, we consider someone like that to have some sort of cognitive impairment, whether they be, you know, psychopathic, sociopathic, or just not even a rational agent at all. You know, they might be someone who just chronically hurts themselves uncontrollably, almost like Tourette's. You know, we wouldn't consider that person morally culpable for their actions. But I think that there is, on the whole, widespread moral agreement. And I would also make a stronger claim, which I would have to get in more argumentation for. But I think that if we all had the same normative concepts, if we were all using the same normative concepts and were Mm -hmm. raised in sufficiently similar environments, we would all have sufficiently similar normative beliefs. So I think where a lot of different disagreement comes in is people using the wrong normative concepts. And I'm going to, I'm going to call out theists right here now who defend forms of divine command theory. If they think that reasons are given by commands instead of by facts, that's where you're going to get ethical disagreement because they're using different concepts. And when you use different concepts, you're going to arrive at different conclusions. And that's why people have a hard time. That's one of the very powerful objections to divine command theory is which command do we listen to? So many people are claiming so many different kinds of commands. Yeah. 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 And so I, I take the sting out of that objection by saying, look, there, there is widespread agreement about basic moral truths and that we can explain this disagreement by 
differing cultures and differing normative concepts. And so that, I think that sufficiently uh, takes Explains the Explains it and at, yeah. shows why it doesn't undermine it. So, yeah. yeah, so so since our intuitions differ, I think I'm the person that's more likely to be getting things right because I can give this explanation of why it is that I'm right and why it is someone else has made uh, some sort of mistake. Yeah, so I I have a, a moral intuition of my own that I would like to kind of hear what you think about. And it's something I got from Sam Harris and his moral landscape. And basically, it's it's not just the, the, the fact that he, that he says, you know, the worst misery, worst possible misery for everyone is bad. I'm with him on that. I think that makes sense. But I think there's even a deeper, more fundamental uh, moral intuition there. And it's basically this, this concern with well-being. And suffering, yeah. and and more, even more than that, I, I, if you keep pushing back, I think this it goes to um, there. It's like a prerequisite uh, is maybe the way I would put it for for any sort of uh, moral evaluation or any sort of morality uh, that there be minds, uh, th- things capable of experiencing, um, and and to the extent that it seems to me that if we imagine a universe without uh, if mine, so if it's literally a universe just filled, comprised of um, of chemicals and rocks, say, it seems to me that that would be not only would that be, uh, be a world without morality, but it would be a world uh, or uh, circumstances where morality would be impossible. It doesn't even make sense. It's incoherent. That's because uh, yeah, and it's so a world did, without moral agents. You've just imagined yeah. a world without people who can respond to reasons or values ah. or moral considerations. So you're right. I think your intuition is right in saying that, yeah, morality would be impossible in that world. But it, it's not because there isn't value or obligations or reasons. It's because there's no agents. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I suppose <laughs> there would still great. be math, right? And so there would still be math in a world without humans. There just wouldn't be any agents to cognize mathematical well, truths. I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure that there would be math. Like, it gets back into like whether math was created or discovered, and and I'm not. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I suppose more interestingly, though, real quick, like when you uh, this is another objection that I could just completely dropped the ball and forgot to get into. Um, I don't believe in free will, man. Like I, and it's obviously like, I, ironically, not by choice, right? Like I, I, I don't think I can't help it. And I, from my understanding of, of the, the science right now, like there doesn't seem, certainly there isn't libertarian free will and nor am I at all persuaded by compatibilist uh, uh, lines of thinking. Although I, again, I would like to be because it, it would seem to be sure. uh, great. And so it's funny where I, I seem to, I, I agree with Sam Harris with his criticism of compatibilism and his acceptance of determinism, but I disagree with him with, with respect to the way he doesn't think this is, uh, it's just a, a concern for morality. And I suppose I, you, you brought up moral agents so do you believe in free will and if not what is it what are we what does it even mean to say agent in that case and it is it is agent even a really good uh is, is it even an appropriate term for what we're talking about does that make so sense? Could, robots perhaps might be just you know might be just as appropriate so we could have a conversation on just this topic for an entire episode Plus some, a lot of ink's been spilt on this paper and my position is by no means obvious. And I would encourage people to 
research it on their own, but I am a compatibilist when it comes to free will. Ah. So what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we can have a sense of free will in which there's a perfectly coherent sense of we could have done otherwise. And that sense of we could have done otherwise is compatible with the truth of determinism, which is the truth that there's a causal process. You know, the causal chain is unbroken. Um, and so and when we, you say we, we could have done otherwise, you just mean to say that the circumstances could have been different such that something else could have happened? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so we can look at past behaviors in order to improve our future behaviors. So we're free in a way that no bird is free. So it used to be the case that an asteroid heading towards the Earth is going to hit the Earth and there's going to be a massive extinction. And in fact, that did. It killed the dinosaurs. But now that's not necessarily true because we're here. So we could potentially go out and Bruce Willis it and blow up an asteroid <laughs> that's going to hit us. I mean, we could. I mean, granted, that's a huge engineering feet you know we, we it would be very difficult but we could in principle do that well I so mean, what we, would, we would just need to send a bunch of people that work on an oil rig right i mean that exactly would... exactly that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, we just yank them up at random and send them up up there and just blow up the asteroid <laughs> but so what changed what changed in the time from the dinosaurs to the time of us what happened well freedom evolved we evolved a sense of freedom we're free in a way that no dinosaur was free we can, we can look into possible states of affairs in the future and predict what certain outcomes will be and then take steps now to change those courses in any way we see fit. So in, in that, I think that's the essence of free will. That's the free will that we have, but I think that's the free will worth having. So that's the only kind of free will we need to be morally morally responsible. So I agree with Kant when he says that ought implies can. Uh, you know, if 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 it's the case that I ought to do something, it's because I can do. It. I have the ability to do that. Well, it's almost like you should say ought implies could. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's certainly uh, something to think about. because because it's not so much that you can right like you it's it's like it it's it's more like it could have been otherwise that you did something differently if if the if the this chain of causal events um, would have been different. But so in that sense, I can be blameworthy for my actions in the sense that had I had I done so and so so and so so and so, I would have acted better or I would have acted worse. But I, I, I I'm sorry. I don't. I'm not sure. Like, I don't see how you could be blameworthy if, if we're all, all we're saying by you being free is that it could have been, it could have been. There could have been a different set of circumstances that brought you to that specific thing. Like, I don't. I, so, I mean, you're, you're right, though. I mean, it's. I think the. This is not. At the end of an hour long uh, discussion is not the time to get into compatibilism, <laughs> and so that's my well, bad. So but you, you said you agent, and I was curious because I had forgotten to get into it. So, so we can take non-moral examples too and see kind of the implausibility of this because if, if what you're saying is the case, then none of, no grade that we've ever gotten on a test, we've never been blameworthy for. You know, ever, that's just the way it was. And so yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people – so right there, I think you, uh, the, 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 the confusion comes because people confuse determinism with fatalism. Well, well I admit that that – would suck. 
So but I not think, so I think much that that's obviously false. Well, we should we should move on though because free will yeah, conversations yeah. can get very very in depth. And well, Benjamin, but, 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 I wanted you I wanted you to convince me of more realism and the existence of free will. <laughs> Damn it! In an hour. In an hour, yeah. <laughs> but but to answer your question, Charlie, I am a compatibilist about yeah about free will, and I I freely admit that that view is not. Um, obvious it's not self-evident it requires argumentation and, and would you also say that you have to i mean you're basically you have to have that i mean you have to be a compatibilist because if not then yeah. um if, then if, basically if, this more or yeah go ahead if I, if I have to hang on to the belief that ought implies can then yeah ah, yeah you're, you're okay. right but notice sam harris didn't do that move. right Right, he right. just he was like, well, ought doesn't imply can, you know. He's like, look, determinism's true. We don't have free will, but that doesn't matter. So this is, I think, Sam Harris yeah. is a compatibilist in everything but name. So I think Dennett is right in his criticisms of Harris on this point. Ooh, yeah, I okay. think his, I think that his their interaction is great, and everyone should go read it and and make up their own minds. But I think that this is where Dennett really gets. Um, Harris, I think I, th- I think he's right in saying that Harris that he's like, look, moral responsibility and determinism are compatible on Harris's view. In that sense, he is a compatibilist. And so, yeah, yeah, but that's a different type. Okay, but yeah, for sure. I mean, so it's not compatibilism and libertarian compatibilism in the sense that you have free will and you are you or rather that you have a sort of choice and yet it's determined is different than saying. You know that it's determined, and yet it's still you have moral responsibility. But but yeah, I, if that's obviously you know that, and so that's that's fair. I, I just think that's easily confused though, because I, I would just when I say compatibilism, and, yeah. and this is a bold claim that I would have to defend, is that at the end of the day, Harris and Dennett's disagreement is purely semantic. If you appreciate the content and tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. Real Atheology wants to thank the following patrons. Matt Smith, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, Jeremy Zeers, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher, of philosophicaldisquisitions.blogspot.com, Jason Macloetta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Soane. Thank you for listening.